right, here we go. Hello, and welcome to the Jontocast, a podcast on early American history. I'm Ken Owen, an assistant professor of early American history at the University of Illinois Springfield. And on this episode of the Jontocast, we're going to be discussing the election of 1800. I'm joined by two other early Americanists to help me discuss this topic. First up, a man who is steadfastly refusing to change his votes, even when he's told he needs to for the good of the country. I'm talking of Michael Hattam. Hello, Ken. Michael is a PhD candidate at Yale University. And I'm also joined by a man who is readying the militia to make sure that he can seize the presidency for the rightful winner of the election. Thanks for joining me, Roy Rogers. Howdy, Ken. Roy is a PhD candidate at the CUNY Graduate Centre and a social studies teacher at Yes Philly. This will be the first episode of the Juntocast in which we trial a new format in which our discussions will be based around one specific framing question. Sometimes these questions will be about events, sometimes they'll be about people, sometimes they'll be about more analytical themes or topics in early American history. But the idea is that for each episode we'll produce about 20 to 30 minutes of discussion and we hope that this will allow us to pick up episodes on a more regular schedule. You may already have noticed that our last episode, the live episode in Missouri, was framed around the question of elections in early America. But when we went back and listened to the recording, we realised that we didn't talk quite as much as we'd expected to about the 1800 election. And given that we're still in the midst of election fever, and that comparisons are often drawn in intense elections such as this year's, with elections that were considered to be momentous in the past, we thought that it might be useful to go back to the election of 1800 uh, to look at exactly how it was considered to be so important and what changes it heralded in the American political regime. So, our framing question for today is, how important was the election of 1800? To get us started on the discussion, I thought it might be helpful if we talked a little bit about the political context in which the election of 1800 takes place. So the key thing to keep in mind in the lead up to the uh, election of 1800 was that the political climate of the 1790s had really become overheated. Uh, the French Revolution was reaching its probably most radical phase and the, the Bonapartism was about to take off. There, there was a lot of chaos in France and that was really being felt in the domestic scene. The quasi-war had been going on. Tensions in the international realm were playing out in the streets of Philadelphia, New York. It was just a very, very tense time in, in American history. Uh, Washington had recently died. So there's this sense of transition from the revolutionary period to what you might call the Republican future. Things were feeling very, very, very transitional and uh, liminal. And so this all added up to, from both sides, both Republicans headed by Thomas Jefferson, who was their presidential candidate in 1800, 
alongside his sort of consigliere political fixer, James Madison, and John Adams, who was the Federalist incumbent, uh, you know, a lot of just sense that something was going to happen in 1800 based on the fact that the Adams administration had very been very, very tumultuous and no one was quite sure what the direction of the Republican would be after that next election. Right. But it's not just that uh, the Adams uh uh, administration had been tumultuous. I mean, the, the second Washington administration had been quite challenging for Federalists. I mean, if you think to back to uh, uh, Citizen Cheney and his uh, rabble-rousing for the French cause on American soil, um, you know, the Whiskey Rebellion, the Jay Treaty the following year, I mean, these weren't moments when the Federalists necessarily covered themselves in glory. And uh, the Adams administration is when these things were kind of all coming to a head. And, and I think the real problem came when they tried to address uh, the discontent uh, with Federalist rule by uh, 1798 with the Alien and Sedition Acts. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you're both right that one of the issues that you see in the late 1790s is that the controversial and often unpopular policies of the second Washington administration have suddenly lost their cover. But many Federalists are acting in a way as if they believe that they have the right to be able to continue to push through this programme that is opposed by large swathes of the country. And so I look, when I look at the election of 1800s, I look at the shape of the congress that was meeting at the same time as well and if you look at the sixth federal congress this conflict with france has actually rebounded to the federalists advantage in 1798 with the xyz affair um, and the quasi war and the fear that a land-based invasion from france could be imminent and therefore the Federalists have cover for their military preparation. They have cover for looking for a lot more control from the federal government. But the problem is that they read the tea leaves wrongly and push this even further. Um, and that's where the Alien and Sedition Acts come in, in a way that makes it seem like all the worst fears of anti-Federalists and Democratic Republicans are coming true that the Federalist government and the Federalist administration is going to push through anti-democratic measures um, that are very clearly partisan in measure. Um, the Sedition Act is one of the clearest here, where the Sedition Act is given a sunset clause that runs out at the very end of Adams's term. So it seems like Democratic Republicans aren't allowed to criticise the Federalist president, but if the people should make some error in 1800 and elect a Democratic Republican, then suddenly everything's fair game for the Federalists. And that sense of overbearing militarisation, anti-immigration, anti-free speech partisanship really creates a very hostile culture particularly at a time when everyone knows that there's an election coming about two years down the road. In 1796, Washington announces his retirement very late. The election never really gathers too much of a head of steam because no one knew that there was a vacancy. In 1800, 
once you get to the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798, there is a period of very heavy mobilisation because everyone knows this showdown between Adams and Jefferson is coming in 1800. So it's a pressure cooker or a crucible or use your overheated metaphor of choice um, but the, the election clearly structures all that conflict into something that's much more compost combustible that, than came before absolutely I, I think the other key thing to remember is i think both among uh republicans and federalists there was a sense that this was going to be the first real test of the federal system because as you note uh washington you know obviously he was uh elected in both terms largely by acclamation and then his retirement came late so there's this sense that washington was basically able to anoint adams at least mildly so and i'm sure our former guest uh jeff pasley would disagrees slightly with that but that the, the hand of washington was much more felt in 1796 than it would be in 1800 because he was dead uh so there's this sense that really the system that had been established in 1789 uh was going to really reach its first test in 1800 could we actually have a peaceful transition of power. And I think that was in the heads of all of the major actors in late 1799 and early 1800. And in some ways, that's scarcely surprising, given the way that political culture develops after the Alien and Sedition Act. I mean, one point I regularly make to my classes is that the Act's fail mm -hmm. in their intention in many ways that by 1800 you have far more republican newspapers than you had in 1798 and there are these outrageous slanders that are being thrown back and forth by partisans of both sides uh this this sense of overheated rhetoric also makes this seem much more cataclysmic. It's one thing we talk about this as federalists and republicans but if you believe that this is a Jacobin or a mobocrat against a monarchist and a monocrat, then that seems much more fundamental to the future of a republic than the party labels that we tend to apply today. And so those stakes seem really quite heated as well. Right. Well, I think there's two points to keep in mind, Ken. And the first is, you know, we're talking about the impact of uh, people's anxiety about France, but really both sides were convinced that the other um, was determined to sort of turn the nation over to a foreign power, right? Uh, that was France for the republic uh, for the Federalists and and uh, or Britain for the Republicans, and he used the the phrase the fate of the republic, and you know that really sums up what many people in this period felt was at stake in in the election of eighteen hundred. I mean the product of the whole 1790s uh, was that you have these two very distinct visions of the nation's uh, future develop and, and they go on to, to, to structure the first party system and that is you know are you going to have a manufacturing commercial state allied with Britain or are you going to have an agrarian state in some sense allied with France and I think that in hindsight, it, it looks like one side anticipated the future while the other side was trying to go back to a past that never existed, 
right? But both of those visions held a really powerful sway over many Americans and over the nation's politics. Nowadays, you know, every four years we have candidates who say this is the most important election of our lifetimes, you know, but you really only have to look at the rhetoric uh, around the election to see that many Americans in 1800 believed that that election would go on to define not just the future of the nation, uh, but the very fate of the republic. And I think also a question of what sort of political culture do you want? that the phrase liberty and order um, often sums up much of the 1790s, but you know, the Federalists are as much in favour of a very tightly, closely, governmentally ordered republic um, as they are in favour of a manufacturing British-leaning republic. Similarly, the Democratic Republicans, especially in the North, but also to some extent in the South, are much more at peace with a broader-based popular practice of politics. Um, and those styles are also really important, particularly um, circling back to Roy's first point, the French Revolution seems to offer this spectre of what might happen. You know, is, it, is this something where a liberty-loving people can exercise popular government in a much looser way than other experiments in constitutional republics or is um, that sort of outpouring of popular activity necessarily going to lead to blood running in the streets um, the fact that this is an age of revolutions really does focus the mind of a lot of partisans in the debate right i mean that's a good point also the notion of what's at stake here is not just the uh future of the republic but, but also the, the, the fate of the revolution, right? And, and it's my sense that the, the more general sense, uh, the fate of the revolution itself was hanging in the balance. It was, was just as visceral in 1800 as it was in 1787 and 1788 uh, during the uh, Constitutional Convention and uh, ratification. And, and that sense is... Is something that comes out of a variety of understandings uh, that had already developed by 1800 of the true meaning and nature of the American Revolution. And so I think it's just important to recognize, you know, that those contested interpretations of a revolution that many of the nation's citizens had, had lived through is a part of this uh, matrix of political stakes in the election. Well, I think now's the time for me to throw in my constitutional pedantry hat into the ring, because one of the things that makes the election of 1800 quite so particular is the fact that it is this drawn-out event. I mean, I was thinking about this even in comparison to the presidential cycle in 2016, which seems to have been going on for a long period of time, but we didn't really know that it was going to be Trump versus Clinton until, what was it, about April or May? It became really obvious that that was going to be the locked-in race. Whereas in the election of 1800, this goes back much earlier, because many states don't have popular election for president. Um, it's legislative elections that decide how states are going to choose their electoral college voters and that means that state legislative elections in 1799 often become the first battleground 
for the presidential election. So really, in terms of meaningful votes being cast, this is something that spreads out uh, for well over a year. And again, contributes to this vituperative culture with accusation and counter-accusation because it's a process that unfolds slowly and unevenly across the various different states. Um, So that's one reason why um, the finer points of electoral practice are important in understanding the election of 1800. Um, But obviously the other one is that while Jefferson is running against Adams in terms of the party contest, uh, the final election, Jefferson ends up with a new foe um, in the form of his putative running mate, Aaron Burr. So how does Burr end up as the Stop Jefferson candidate? Well, I, I think it's a couple of things. I think it's the fact that the constitutional system was fundamentally broken when it was a con- contested election, right? That you, that the original text of the Constitution created these ambiguities, you know, the fact that there weren't separate ballots for president and vice president, uh, the fact that it was the runner-up, which led to the sort of farce of Thomas Jefferson, the opposition leader, being the vice president for Adams for, for four years, sort of plays out in a really semi-tragic way with Burr and and Jefferson, even though Burr and Jefferson initially approached the election as a ticket in a way that's no different than Clinton Kane right now or, or Trump Pence, and the Republicans tried to engineer it so that Jefferson could with slightly more electoral votes than uh, Burr, but for various contingent reasons it didn't work out that way. Uh, I think the other reason Burr was able to end up this way is Burr is in a very interesting position in the sense that he's a very forward-looking politician, and you can, and it, weirdly, the Hamilton music the musical doesn't really go into this, but Hamilton and Burr were engaging in New York, in, a, in the New York City, in a very sort of revolutionary political campaign there, where Burr, as a candidate for vice president, was basically campaigning in a modern sense. He was going door to door. He was organizing various political activists in New York directly himself, not his best friend or his his patron organizing for him, but himself organizing a political machine in New York to turn out a Republican vote. And Hamilton was attempting to do the same thing for the Federalists. Uh, so Burr had was a combination of both candidate and Republican hack in the North. And he, because he was a Northerner, you could see people who knew that Adams, when the decision was given to the House, uh, wasn't going to be picked. But there were enough Federalists and Republicans who were slightly uncomfortable with Jefferson because of the fact that he was a slaveholder, because of, you know, various things about Jefferson in in that period, some, you know, the fact that he was able to be successfully painted as somewhat more radical than Jefferson may look to us in the 21st century, you know, there's this combination of Burr could have the best of both worlds, the fact that he had proven himself a successful campaigner and helped his ticket get to this point, but he was in some ways more palpable to many Northern Republicans and Federalists than Jefferson was, sort of it creates this window for him when 
the House of Representatives gets to choose the president to get there. Because we have to remember in the Constitution, the House of Representatives doesn't have a legal constitutional obligation to pick any of the candidates. They can pick someone who wasn't on the ballot, much less the person who received the second most electoral votes. Right. So, you know, building off of what Roy just said, I, I'd just say that it's worth noting two things about the election. First is that um, both parties had split tickets in a regional sense, right? Jefferson, the Southerner, Burr, the Northerner, and for the Federalist, Adams from the North and Pinckney from the South. And it it speaks kind of uh, paradoxically to, to the importance of regionalism, but also to the, the, the nationalness uh, of the election. The other thing, very briefly, uh, that, that Roy mentioned is the campaigning. And, and Hamilton and Burr uh, staged debates outside polling places uh, in New York City from dawn to dusk. And when they weren't debating each other, they were running around the city speaking uh, trying to rally their voters, and they did that for the, you know, the, the entire three days uh, that the election was held uh, in New York City, and that was a really unprecedented form of campaigning uh, that a lot that a lot of newspapers uh, commented on uh, unfavorably. Actually, uh, at the time, you know, saying that this was sort of beneath a, a vice president. Uh, to to be running around begging people for their votes. Yeah. And I think when we look at Burr in particular, we see that the situation that emerges in 1800 sort of forces the American political system into a much more modern form of campaigning. Because if we were looking at the election of 1800s being run today in 2016, there wouldn't be anything like the lingering controversy because it would be clear that Jefferson won. You know, Jefferson defeated Adams. And so, under the understanding of most people that were voting at the time, Jefferson had the claim to be president. It was only constitutional manoeuvrings that allowed Burr's putative candidacy to run so long. And I think in that case, you know, there are many people that recognise that Burr's attempt to seize power um, by letting it no be known that he would accept the presidency if the House of Representatives nominated him. Um, that makes it very clear to many people that the system is broken. Um, but also, it shows just how far a partisan system can bring a system, a country, a form of government, to the brink of collapse. Because there's no question that... Federalists in the House of Representatives knew that they were playing constitutional games. You know, they knew that they were playing silly beggars with the desire of the people. And yet, they're still trying to find this constitutional manoeuvre that will stop Jefferson. I think that shows you just how seriously the stakes of the election are taken. Um, and I might as well throw in on the flip side how seriously it's taken on the other side, because one of the things that people don't talk about quite so much when they talk about the House of Representatives is the fact that Thomas McCain, as governor of Pennsylvania, James Monroe, as governor of Virginia, start making military preparations to stop Burr from becoming president. You know, they feel so strongly that the will of the people is in favour of Jefferson, that this is actually something that's threatening to bring the country to brink of civil war. 
I, th- I think that's the key point, and I think it's possible to view Monroe and and others' actions about mobilizing militias in a little less patriotic and democratic way. Like, I think what the election of 1800 shows is that the House of Representatives and the procedure that they created, the Constitution creates to resolve a contested presidential election like this, is fundamentally flawed and leads to these kind of situations. And we see it in subsequent American history when it goes to the House to make these decisions that it's going to lead to this kind of partisan maneuvering and sort of horse trading in many ways that's common to the legislative process, but much less common to the electoral process, at least explicitly. And they do fix it when they cha- when they separate the pr- the president and the vice president into s- two separate tickets, but they don't entirely fix it, as we'll see in uh, 1876, that there's still deep flaws in the system. Right. I, I think also, you know, what Burr represents um, really is this the sort of end of the original uh, founders, you know, ideal of disinterested politician, um, you know, doing everything for the, the public good and not thinking about self-interest. Uh, you know, Burr is is really the, the opposite of that, certainly in the minds of the the, the revolutionary politicians. Uh, who are still on the scene in 1800. And so, you know, in some sense, it represents uh, a, the, the degradation of the original revolutionary vision to a lot of those original revolutionaries. They can. So building on that, Michael, I think the best way to sort of end this discussion of Burr is that Burr is the kind of character that makes some implicit – he forces implicit assumptions of partisanship and ambition to become explicit and that there needs to be a refining of the political culture and the institutional rules to see where the line is being crossed because it's clear – that both Federalists and Burr violated political norms, but those political norms hadn't been fully institutionalized by 1800, and many of them, some of them at least, will be in subsequent revisions of the Constitution and sort of the ways in which parties work. So Burr forces a generation of leaders to confront what the political system has become, and that really does begin to revolutionize the way in which national elections work. And that speaks to one of the ways I was going to frame a question to round this discussion off, which is that one of the most famous quotes about the election of 1800 comes from Jefferson himself, in which he rather self-aggrandizingly claims that 1800 was as much a revolution in principles as the revolution of 1776 was in forms. And this is very clearly something that's plays to Jefferson's self-image, but 1800 does mark a very clear turning point in the political life of the Republic, in that by 1802, the Federalists are written out of power. Um, The Democratic Republicans have the presidency, a Senate majority, and a, a comfortable Senate majority, and a comfortable House majority. And that really reshapes the way that politics is going to be played in the next um, decades. I mean, I, I think you're right about that, Ken, in, in terms of politics. 
but uh, I, I think one of the ways in which um, historians would disagree with that is, is to point to policy. You know, for all his talk about a revolution in 1800, Jefferson really didn't govern all that differently uh, than the previous Federalist administrations. I mean, he uh, lowered taxes and, you know, stripped down the, the federal budget, sure, but, but on many issues there wasn't any kind of uh, serious radical uh, change. And it kind of reminds me of the famous quote by Henry Adams who 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 said, you know, it's hard to see how any president could have been more federalist than Jefferson himself. I both, I both agree and disagree with Michael. I think it's overblown the election of 1800. Like many of the things Jefferson emphasized, like there was no real rollback of federal power in, in, in the election of 1800, the subsequent uh, actions that the Jeffersonians did both through the presidency and when they controlled Congress, but that, but the federal authority was just pushed into different directions, right? And you see this with the Louisiana Purchase, which is a huge extension of federal power and, and, and executive authority, but done for ideological reasons of the Jeffersonians. To me, what's most interesting and most important about the election of 1800, it's the first time that a presidency and, and its party claims a mandate, not just an electoral college mandate, the way in which Washington, where it was clear, both the electors and to, to the people as well, wanted Washington to be president, but a real choice where the voters were offered option A and option B, and they chose option B. And that means we need to execute X, Y, and Z policies which was not clear when Adams took over from Washington, but Jefferson and the, and the Republicans, and this doesn't happen naturally. The way in which sometimes we think about this is it's going to happen naturally, but no, it doesn't. That the fact that the Jeffersons through Jefferson's subsequent statements, like calling it the revolution of 1800 created this narrative that pushed Federalists to the margin said the people chose us and we're going to execute these policies. And that it, to me is what really makes the election of eighteen hundred so revolutionary. It was the, the creation slowly and steadily of the concept of a federal mandate for a certain party to usher in its policies, its office holders, and then seek to get that mandate ratified in a subsequent election, not just in Jefferson's re-election in 1804, but as Ken noted, in 1802. It's not you know, a natural outcome of the election of 1800 that 1802 would be a big sweep for the Republicans is the fact that they spent those two years, both on the state level and the federal level, trying to build a political coalition to ratify the policy shifts that began in when Jefferson took office in 1801. And that's one of the really interesting consequences um, in terms of how it shapes political culture as well. I mean, there's been a, a lot of books that emphasise the popular political culture of the 1790s running through into the decades of the early republic. But what you see with the claiming of that sort of mandate is that it pushes popular approval almost to a point of pre-approval in a way where one of the reasons for there being so much fervour in the 1790s is that the people don't know too much about policies until it's presented to them, or in the case of the Jay Treaty, until they you know, pretty much literally wring it out of the hands of a Virginia senator. Um, whereas 
by the time you get to 1800, there's much clearer prior discussion of the general approach that an administration and a Congress should be taking in framing governments that hasn't really existed in elect administrations and elections. That's a really good point, Ken. I think it's actually really important to stress this because really what the Jeffersonians do in the election of 1800 and in 1801-1802 is, is sort of create this idea of elections have consequences as we would say it today. And it doesn't like it's an assumption that it's a policy forward assumption, which is you put us in power, we're going to execute these policies versus we're going to put forth these policies to be ratified by the people. It sort of reverses democratic and Republican logic. And that's really interesting, particularly in the 21st century, when you see the way in which both our most recent presidents, both Bush and Obama, have acted, and both the promises that candidates Clinton and Trump are making. They're not going to be offering policies to the people for approval once they're in office. They're saying, by electing us, you are giving us the authority to be forward-looking to and execute the policies that we will be able to make with Congress. And I think that's very different than the assumptions that were operating in the Washington and Adams administrations, which were very much like, we trust the characters of these men, and they will present before us good policies to be ratified through both popular debate and Congress. There's sort of a creation of the sense of a democratic culture that limits the people's decision-making options to these election cycles, both the presidency every four years and then Congress every two. And it's a very interesting transition that, you know, the Jeffersonians who are seen as sort of the, the heralds of the people really in many ways strangely restrict democratic culture by creating this mandate system that we've carried on to the 21st century. Well, I think on that note, we've managed to give a pretty convincing case for the importance of the election of 1800, uh, both as a turning point, as a precursor future political developments, and in terms of framing in quite sharp focus a large number of long-running debates from the 17th. If you want to hear more about elections, you should listen to our previous episode, uh, Elections in Early America. If you'd like to get in contact with us about anything that you've listened to today, you can contact us by email at thejuntocast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter using the handle at Juntocast, or on Facebook by searching for The Juntocast. We'll be putting up our recording and show notes on our website, the Junto, where you can find suggestions for further reading and links to all our past episodes. That just leaves me to thank Michael and Roy for discussing the election with me today. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Ken. And to thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us for the next episode. Mm-hmm.